While many architecture academics have criticized Las Vegas for its lack of substance, there may be no better example of this elitism than the scorn directed towards the stardust. For better or worse, history points to the stardust as the defining moment when Las Vegas no longer required a jacket and tie to gain entrance to. Instead of celebrating the brilliance in the stardust minimalism, it was trash for focusing more on the exterior signage and facade wrapped around a building that was little more than a massive nondescript warehouse. Whether inadvertent or by intention, it seems each time Vegas has successfully evolved itself to appeal to more diverse tastes, that success is met with opposition, slut-shaming those who dare to find things appealing like neon signage, themed resorts, or anything deemed inferior to intellectual taste. But the glory that is Las Vegas is knowing that judging people for what appeals to them has never made converts, it alienates. Even if supplying that demand is more financially motivated than cultural. When the majority doesn't see things the way you'd like them to, that doesn't mean they're wrong. It means you don't get it. The Stardust got it in a big way. In the early 1900s, the Strala family were farmers in Napa Valley. When it was discovered that their son Antonio wanted to make a living in less than reputable forms of business, they forced him to change his last name so as not to have it associated with such things. So we changed it to his birth father's last name. History would come to know Antonio as Tony Cornero. As a side note, Tony's father passed away shortly after the family immigrated to the United States from Italy. When his mother remarried, the whole family adopted their stepfather's last name, Strala. During Prohibition, Tony was a successful bootlegger, smuggling whiskey from Canada, rum from Mexico, and selling them to speakeasies in Southern California. In 1926, already a millionaire at the age of 25, he was caught smuggling booze into the United States. As a result, he was sentenced to two years in jail. However, while being transported to the prison via train, he escaped and fled to Canada and eventually to Europe, where he hid for several years. But in 1929, he returned to California and turned himself in. While incarcerated, Tony learned that Nevada was about to re-legalize gambling. It is possible he knew before going into prison or at least that would explain why he decided to turn himself into authorities after successfully evading them. Gambling never really went away in Las Vegas after it was criminalized in 1910. But when Congress authorized the Boulder Dam Project, Las Vegas looked the other way philosophy prevented the city from being awarded funding to build housing for the workers of that project. Instead, the city of Boulder was created. In truth, the entire Boulder Dam Project was threatened to be aborted if Las Vegas didn't clean up the drinking, gambling, and prostitution that ran unchecked on Block 16 and 17. Today, 
Block 16 is where you'll find Binion's second parking garage. Surrounded by Ogden Avenue to the south, First Street to the west, Stewart Avenue to the north, and Casino Center Boulevard to the east. Today, Block 17 is where you'll find Pizza Rock and Downtown Grand's second hotel tower. Surrounded by Ogden Avenue to the south, Casino Center Boulevard to the west, Stewart Avenue to the north, and Third Street to the east. Rather than shut down its only real source of commerce, the city publicly discouraged the activities and began a series of very public raids to crack down on these operations. This was done as a distraction, while work to re-legalize gambling in the state was simultaneously being done behind the scenes. As he served his time, Tony's brothers Frank and Lewis bought 30 acres of land on Boulder Highway, just outside the Vegas city limits, near the convergences of Charleston Boulevard and Fremont Street. The site was strategically selected because it would be the first property construction workers would see coming into the city from the Boulder Dam job site. It would also allow prostitution and booze to relocate outside the city limits, technically complying with the United States government's demands. However, just as their project was getting off the ground, the stock market crashed in October of 1929, and the Great Depression began. Undeterred, progress on the project continued. Once the state officially legalized gambling, one of the first gambling licenses awarded in 1931 was to Tony's brothers, Frank and Lewis. At $31,000, the Corella Strala brothers built the Green Meadows Resort, or better known as simply, the Meadows, the English translation of the Spanish word Las Vegas. It was considered the earliest roadside hotel casino in Las Vegas, 10 years before El Rancho and 15 years before Flamingo. Popular sentiment is the Meadows was an instant success. However, in the midst of the Great Depression, success was a pejorative term. The truth of what happened next is nearly impossible to ascertain. Some claim the property's success wasn't nearly as great as it was advertised. Others say that while the casino was a hit, prostitutes were the only way hotel rooms got any occupancy as locals returned to their homes after enjoying the property for the evening. Another story claims the property's success attracted the attention of organized crime who demanded a cut of the action. Regardless of the real reason, four months after the Meadows opened, a fire broke out and the hotel burned to the ground. While the details of what happened following this incident are also many and conflicting, what is known is business at the Meadows Casino continued after the fire, but by 1936, it closed for good and Cornero moved back to LA. In 1938, Tony Cornero opened two new casinos, this time off the coast of Southern California. Since gambling was illegal in the state of California, the idea was to operate in the vicinity while still outside of the state's jurisdiction. To do that, casinos were built on giant shipping vessels, reconfigured to accommodate large barn-like structures. Then, they were anchored three miles off the coast of California, putting them in international waters and beyond the jurisdiction of the U.S. law while still visible to the naked eye on land. At a cost of 300000 Corneros SS Tango and SS Rex were stationed off the coast of Long Beach and Santa Monica. Gamblers would take water taxis from land to the ships. Gamblers would take water taxis from the land to the ships, of which the SS Rex could accommodate 2,000 gamblers as well as a crew of 350. That crew included a full orchestra, gourmet chefs, and a squad of gunmen. Unlike his counterparts in the gambling ship industry, Tony wasn't shy about advertising his casinos in the local papers. 
Most of the time, local authorities were happy to look the other way. But Cornero's promotion seemed to flaunt the loophole gambling ships exploited in the law. They also incited the opposition to them to become more vocal, which then gave opportunistic politicians an issue to run their campaigns on, promising plans of reform if elected. One such politician was California State Attorney General Earl Warren. He would later go on to be better known as Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren. After being elected to office in 1938, Warren ordered a series of raids on the gambling ships, making sure to alert the media ahead of time so it would all be well documented in the newspapers the following day. He made a spectacle of the raids, with photo ops of slot machines being tossed overboard and gambling tables piled together and set on fire. The public and judicial battle would rage on for the next 10 years and result in the relocating of several California coastlines so gambling ships could be successfully prosecuted. While continuing to fight for his rights to operate gambling ships, Cornero attempted to return to Las Vegas in 1939, this time buying into the ownership group running the Apache Hotel on Fremont Street. Paying tribute to his gambling ships, he renamed the casino the SS Rex. Knowing they wouldn't license Tony Cornero, Tony Strala applied for a gaming license. However, that endeavor only lasted 21 months, as the Gaming Commission wasn't fooled by the name change, and it only further confirmed why they shouldn't approve him for a gaming license. In 1948, Cornero was done dealing with the constant hassle of running gambling ships, and decided to relocate his operation to Mexico. But before that could happen, he was greeted at his home by two assassins, sent from the competition in the new market he was looking to move into, who shot him four times after he answered his front door. Tony underwent immediate surgery and managed to survive. While recovering, an idea came to him for a new concept in Vegas, an idea that became a Vegas icon. It would come to be known as the Stardust. The concept was simple, attract the masses. While all the other properties seemed to be focused on getting high rollers to play at their property, they simultaneously alienated the vast majority of the population. Cornero reasoned that if the everyman had a place that catered to them, they would come out in droves. Originally named the Starlight, the idea was imagined as the largest hotel casino ever built, a 1,000-room motel with bungalow-type sections named after planets. In 1954, Tony purchased 40 acres of land on the Las Vegas Strip for $650,000. He raised $4 million selling shares of stock in the resort to investors. With construction already underway, Cornero submitted an application for a gaming license for the renamed Stardust Project. The application listed over 1,000 stockholders, proudly classified as coming from all walks of life, ordinary people investing their money in an extraordinary, even historic opportunity. Citing how difficult it would be to police that many owners, the commission announced it would accept no more than 50 owners as part of any casino ownership license application. In addition to that, a discrepancy was discovered in May of 1955. The state of California issued Cornero a cease and desist order when it was discovered that he never bothered to actually incorporate his new business entity, meaning the shares he raised $4 million with selling to investors had no legally enforceable value. Making it clear they would not approve any application that include Cornero as an owner, in June of 1955, Cornero officially withdrew his application for a gaming license. Instead, Pioneer Club owner Milton Farmer Page would replace him 
as the owner of record. Pornero would retain 50% ownership of the company, but officially only be the owner of the property, leasing out the casino operations to those with a gaming license. What happened next is another example of how difficult it is to accurately tell a story about the history of Las Vegas during the time organized crime ran the place. What is known is on July 31st, while playing craps at the Desert Inn, Tony Cornero died of a heart attack. Some accounts claim that while the Stardust was under construction, Cornero had a bad habit of gambling with investor money. Investors that included large loans from members of organized crime in Vegas. After Cornero's death, rumors immediately began to circulate that he was poisoned as reports that the glass he was drinking from went missing after he dropped. This legend was further fueled by claims that the staff of the Desert Inn didn't report the death for almost four hours after it happened. While suspicion was vocalized by law enforcement and an investigation was launched, nothing came of either. With $5 million invested in the project at that point, progress on the Stardust slowed to a crawl. By default, the project fell to Tony's brother, Lewis, to finish. However, it was clear that Tony was the driving force behind the whole idea. Further complicating matters, in the wake of Tony's death, multiple lawsuits were filed regarding the fake stock situation. It was clear new leadership was needed to ensure the project considered too big to be allowed to fail was completed. Eventually, Jake Factor, brother of cosmetic magnet Max Factor, would be approved to take over ownership of the Stardust. But that would take two years to resolve. Being little more than the face of the property, Jake brought in Mo Daylitz to actually run the Stardust. Once new ownership had a chance to take a look at the property to determine what was needed to complete it, multiple fundamental problems were found. The most glaring of which was the casino structure, built with a casino that was too low to allow for attic surveillance of the gaming tables, a feature recently introduced at the Sands and immediately adopted as an industry standard. With the final price tag to build the Stardust of $10 million, on July 2nd, 1958, she finally opened with 1,065 rooms. While advertisements would refer to the Stardust as luxurious, architects immediately hated it, claiming it had no defining characteristics, referring to it as nothing more than a decorated shed. Adding to their point of contention was the Stardust sign, regarded as the only semblance of architecture at the property. Academics would point to the Stardust as the shining example of everything wrong with Las Vegas architecture. However, those that voiced their discontent quickly found themselves labeled as elitists, completely out of touch with the public, who were more interested in function than fashion. Yesco and Kermit Wayne designed both the facade and the roadside sign for the property. While Dalitz would claim the sign was his idea, plan show it was part of Cornero's original concept. The Stardust frontage was a panoramic view of the solar system. At the center of the sign was a plastic earth We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. 
That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Thank you.